As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 111. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Father, we thank you that you have granted to us your word to teach us your ways. And we need your spirit to help us to be obedient to your commandments. And Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to give praise to your name for all that you are and all that you have done. And the fact that we too have been drawn into your presence, even here this morning, you have said in your word that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in their midst. And so we're, we know you're here this morning to speak to our hearts, to touch us, to create true fellowship amongst us, and to give us the focus that we need because our purpose, Lord, is to know how to walk with you in a way that will make a difference in this world where you've placed us. And Father, we want to agree together concerning the needs of this city of Reading, of this country, and of the world that you will be at work this day and even as later this morning when we pray for many of our missionary friends, that we will see a great work that you're doing in the lives of people in many parts of the world, especially right here now uh, in this church and in this city this day. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel. We talked about the first five verses last time, but I want to read those again plus the next passage because it's all part of Samuel's address. Uh, that he made to Israel there at Gilgal. So chapter 12, verse 1, Then Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have appointed a king over you, and now he is the king. here is the king walking before you. But I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord, their God, and so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, a hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve thee. Then the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel 
and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the king, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him, and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Then you will know that, know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. As we saw in the first five verses, Samuel defended his position as Shaphat in Israel and was able to gain from the people acknowledgement that he had not in any way defrauded or uh, perverted his position as Shofat. He had been an example. And I mentioned last time that I think the reason he made such a point of this was to set a standard for all the kings of Israel to be measured against. And, and that would be, of course, of course, ultimately the standard of the Word of God. In the second part of his address that uh, begins at verse 6, Samuel reminded the people that it was God who brought them out of Egypt. It was God who had anointed the leaders over them. Now, of course, he's making this as a contrast. God chose Moses. God chose Aaron. You have demanded a king. Of course, as we know, God selected that king, but it was because of their demand. So beginning in verse 7, Samuel acts as an advocate when he commands Israel to stand at attention before Yahweh, who is their supreme judge. Then... He provides evidence of God's righteousness on the part of Israel and then holds that in stark contrast to the unrighteousness of Israel. God has been righteous. You have been unrighteous. And of course, the point of all of this, which is coming along, is the fact God is righteous, you're unrighteous, and yet you're demanding that you have a king of your choice. When Israel lived in helpless slavery in Egypt, he points out it was God who sovereignly chose Moses and Aaron. It wasn't, Israel had nothing to do with the selection of Moses and Aaron. They had no idea that God was at work. They had nearly forgotten the Lord, their God. But God led them out of Egypt and he brought them to the promised land. And once they got into the promised land for which they had worked all those many years, they promptly forgot the Lord. It's almost a given that if we get into really, really good times, and things are going smooth as glass for us. It was a dangerous time, very dangerous time, because we have a tendency to forget our dependence on the Lord our God. And that's why, of course, many of you are laughing. What, what is a smooth time? <laughs> I haven't seen one of those in a very long time. <laughs> well, thank the Lord, because he gives us a rough road so that we keep our eyes fixed on him, because he knows our tendency. He knows that we will go astray. And of course, what this did for Israel was result in the era of the Shofatim, 
the, the long period of time uh, in which God raised up the judges, and we studied through that uh, particular book in the Scripture. During that time, what did God do to roughen up the road? He brought oppressors. He brought the various ites, right, into the land. Amalekites and Midianites and all the other ites uh, were brought into the land or raised up within the land to give Israel a difficult time. And the purpose was to remind Israel of their dependence on the Lord. You know, the vision in Israel of security and, and shalom is every man sitting under his own vine or under his own fig tree, you know. Uh, you've got your land, your land is producing, you've got your wife and your children, and the sun rises every day, and the rain comes when it's supposed to come, and the enemies are not in the land. Well, that is true shalom. But the problem with true shalom is that often his people turned away from him. What he did with, of course, the oppressors was to use them to awaken them to their folly, and when they awoke to the fact that they were oppressed because they had rejected God, they repented of their sin, and they cried out to God for deliverance, and he delivered. I don't know how many of you, again, I, I don't want to keep harping on the same radio program, but we hear it almost every morning while we're getting ready. Irwin Lutzer this morning was talking about the fact that even when we stray, God does not leave us. God is there. God pulls us back. God always walks with us. But that doesn't mean we can't mess up our lives, and we can't mess it up royally, because we can but he doesn't depart from us if we're truly his children. And that's what we're seeing in Israel's case. He continues to walk with them. Oh, there will be a day when he will allow uh, them to go their way, and it will be disastrous for them. But his covenant was, was, was with Israel, and when they repented of their sin, God delivered them. He responded, of course, by sending a series of deliverers, the Shofatim, one after the other, and we read about them, beginning with Othniel and ending with, with Samuel. Through the judges, what did he do? He restored security to Israel. He restored shalom to Israel. And that security and that shalom remained intact and unchallenged as long as they walked hand in hand with God. Verse 12 of this passage, as we read it uh, this morning, seems to be telling us that although the Philistines were the main thorn in the flesh, for Israel at this particular time, it could be that it was the threat of the, of the Ammonites that finally pushed Israel over the edge and caused them to demand a king. The Ammonites before, they actually laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. They penetrated the land and they were beginning to move through the land and that was a threat and so they called for a king and then the king, of course, served as the leader for the deliverance of Jabesh Gilead and that's what was in the previous chapter that we just finished. This seems to have triggered the demand that Israel have a king so that they would be like all the surrounding countries, and when trouble came, they knew the king would take care of it. They didn't have to bite their fingernails running, wondering who was going to be Shofat or if the Shofat was going to, was going to act and, and realize that they were going to all be called up as Minutemen, if you will, to come forward and help fight, but that there would be an army led by the king, trained for the purpose, who would protect the land, and that's what they wanted. How does that translate for us? Well, you know, sometimes I think we want just a list of things. Choo, 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 choo. And if I do this, 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 everything's okay with me, between me and God, and life's going to be smooth as everything, and we don't want to live on that day-by-day, 
of faith in what God will do on our behalf, trusting him no matter how difficult the situation may be, uh, ready for him to call up the militia, as it were, to deal with whatever the problem is in our lives. We, we want to have that army, so to speak, of having just fulfilled all the little things, you know, boing, 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 I did this, 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 therefore everything's going to be perfect and okay, that kind of an army to always fend off uh, the, um, the attacker. No, that's the way God asks us to live. He says the just shall live by faith. Faith that God is with us and he's going to help us through whatever difficulties come along because those difficulties are character builders. And you know that from many passages in the New Testament. Samuel, of course, was making a case for how faithful God had been in contrast to how faithless Israel had been. Therefore, how groundless is their demand that one of them, flesh and blood Israelite, should replace the sovereign God as their king? I mean, for us, we think, yeah, it seems a little silly, but look at it from God's perspective. It's got to be ludicrous that they want one of these peanut little men of their own society to be their king when I, the Lord of the universe, am their king. It's a real study in idiosity. Is that, is that a word, Alan? Oh, okay. <laughs> Check with my English teacher over here and make sure. <laughs> I'm, I've, I've coined a few words before. <laughs> my students have noticed. It's a good, good coin, though. Nevertheless, out of his grace and his mercy, God had given them the king that they had demanded. In spite of this foolish choice, God allowed the covenant to remain intact, and he continued to bless them, Israel. And Samuel says that if both the people and the king choose to fear the Lord and to obey him, he would continue to keep his covenant with them. However, there's always a however, isn't there? If they rebelled against the Lord, the scripture says the hand of the Lord will be against them. I don't know about you, but I really don't want the hand of the Lord against me. We have enough to go with the hand of the evil one against us. But the hand of the Lord, of course, almighty. The hand of the Lord had been against Israel at various times in their history, and these people knew that with you. Samuel wanted the people to know he wasn't just talking or blowing smoke here. And so Samuel calls for a miraculous sign. Specifically, the sign was to drive home the point that rejecting God as their king and choosing uh, one of their own to be his replacement was not a small sin. In fact, Samuel in the passage calls it great wickedness. Great wickedness. We don't always view wickedness the same way God does. We think of certain things as great wickedness. You know, a mass murderer is a greatly wicked person. But we don't realize that simple rebellion against the Lord our God is great wickedness even if it doesn't manifest itself in any overt crime. Just an attitude of the heart of coldness and indifference towards God is just as great a wickedness as any of these so-called crimes are. Israel possesses a summer dry climate. The climate is called Mediterranean because that's the biggest region of the world that experiences that type of climate. 
That's the same climate we have here in Central California. It's a unique climate. It's only found a few places in the world, Central California, Central Chile. It's found in the southern part of Australia, a little bit in South Africa, and in the Mediterranean. The rest of the world does not experience a Mediterranean climate, which is a summer dry. Most of the world experiences a great deal of precipitation in the winter, uh, in, in the summertime. Uh, most of the world can't count on July 4th, barbecue, no rain. <laughs> Uh, we can here in California. It's extremely rare that uh, anything happens to dampen our barbecue in the summertime. That's what makes this such a miracle. He's calling for a thunderstorm. That very day and literally out of a clear blue sky in July. When is wheat harvested in Israel? In July. It doesn't rain in July. It's great for wheat harvest. And so out of a clear blue sky, Samuel calls for a thunderstorm, not, not a little bitty dribble, a thunderstorm, where they will see the power of God in the crashing rain and the flashing lightning and the roar of the thunder, much like what happened on Sinai. What is interesting is this not only demonstrated the power of God, but it demonstrated the authority of the prophet Samuel. And the passage tells us this because we read in the passage all the people feared the Lord greatly and Samuel. Whoa, Samuel is the man. We need to pay heed to him. Some ways it's kind of sad, though, because in effect, they were setting Samuel aside and replacing him with Saul. Saul was the king, and no longer was Samuel their shofat, their judge. Oh, he could still be a prophet. I think some of those who were a little bit more insightful amongst Israel were beginning to think, hmm, Saul's just a man. He's demonstrated a little bit of leadership here in defeating the Ammonites, but he doesn't have the power of Samuel. Maybe we've made a mistake. This miracle, I think, drove home the danger of disobedience. When wheat is ripe for harvest, it is very vulnerable to storm, to strong winds, to heavy rain, or especially to hail. Thus they understood disobedience to God can bring God's discipline and cause calamity just as that storm could have wiped out their wheat crop at that very moment had God so chosen. You and I live in a land where there's an awful lot of food in storage. We don't live from crop to crop here normally. I'm not saying it won't happen someday, but at this point we don't. But in the ancient world, they basically lived from crop to crop. That's what made the whole story of ancient Egypt so unusual. When uh, Joseph said, let's store up the excess grain each year so we'll have seven years' worth of crops stored up. They didn't normally do that, obviously. And so if a storm came through and devastated a crop, the people would be in trouble because that crop would not be there to harvest. They would not only not have it for food, they wouldn't have much of it for seed for next year. It could be multipled. The, the, the problems could be multiplied. It was obvious God could generate such a storm because Samuel simply cried out to God and whoosh, there it was. Unfortunately, as we shall see, unless the fear of the Lord is conscientiously and purposefully taught, it's easily forgotten in the day-by-day -day course of life as we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Constantly there, the world, the flesh, and the devil never take a vacation. We can't just go through a day and say, hey, I cruised through this day. I was never tempted to do a single bad thing all day long. 
Well, the only way, the way we could say that is if we were in a coma all day. <laughs> that we're never relieved from those assaults. That's why being conscientiously pursuing God is so vitally important. As a result, Israel and her kings would face many tragic times due to their disobedience. And of course, we'll, Lord willing and, and everything else willing, uh, we'll look maybe at some of the kings of Israel and see how rare it was to have a king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Let me just summarize it again for you. I have done it before. In the history of the northern kingdom called Israel, there was not one king about whom it was said he did right in the eyes of God. Out of 19 kings, not one. And in the history of the southern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of David, there were 20 kings of whom it was said five did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and only about three as David had done. And so in 15, three quarters of the kings of the southern kingdom were wicked also. It is no wonder that both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom succumbed to enemies as God lifted his hand a blessing off these people. And they ultimately, Israel was cast into the diaspora. They rejected Jesus. God was patient with them. They lived through the destruction of Jerusalem in, in AD 70. They lived through a second major catastrophe in, in the second century as uh, there was another major revolt. And Rome finally just ostracized the Jews from their own country, sent them scattered. And as a result, we have the Sephardic Jews and the Ashkenazi Jews and, and Jews mixed into various societies all over the world even as far away as China. Let's read on at verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, so that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And you must not turn aside, for then you would go after the futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king shall be swept away. The power of the storm and the power of the words of Samuel as anointed by Yahweh were used by the Spirit of God to put fear into the hearts of his people. That's one of the purposes of our study and our listening to the Word of God because that's what puts fear in our hearts. Uh, I mean fear in the right sense. You know, we don't sit around biting our nails off with our knees knocking, waiting God, for God to knock us down again. But, uh, you know, reverence, uh, a sense of, of who God is and of His mightiness. It's very important that that be constantly reinstilled in our hearts because Satan is always coming along saying as he did to to Eve in the garden. Will God really do this? Nah. Like the people listening to Jonathan Edwards' famous 18th century sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
the Israelites were, were just so fearful that they might immediately die from their sin that as we read in this passage they pled with Samuel to intercede with God, with God on their behalf. And those of you who have read the account of Jonathan Edwards' sermon as he gave that sermon, and, and of course, we have this tendency to think that Jonathan Edwards must have been pounding and screaming and bouncing around. No, those Puritans sat there and they read their sermons da -da 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 -da, in a monotone. Talk about the power of the Spirit of God. It wasn't any human energy that delivered the power of that sermon. It was simply God at work through those words that drove into the hearts of the people. Well, in response to their plea, please intercede with us, with God, Samuel proclaimed God's mercy. In effect, he told them that they would not die if they repented of their sin and committed themselves to serving God himself. Repent and obey, repent and serve. The message from Genesis through Revelation. He warned them that God would not accept syncretism. He would not accept the truth mixed with falsehood. They could not claim to be God's people and at the same time chase after futile things. Futile things, translated here, is the Hebrew word that means useless, formless. It's a euphemism for idols. They could not serve God and also idols is what he's saying here. Any useless thing, be it an idol that's obvious or an idol that is an idol of the mind. Anything that turned their focus away from God was a futile thing. Are there any futile things today? Most churches don't have idols in them, but the idols of the mind still exist. Things which take our energy and our time and our resources away from God and pour it into something else, mostly for our own entertainment. That's a futile thing. Mercy is an attribute of God. And here it was extended to Israel because God had sovereignly chosen to place his name with Israel. He didn't give them his mercy because they earned it. He gave them his mercy out of his sovereign choice. Let me read from the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, beginning at verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God, excuse me, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you or, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to, a thousand to the thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay, he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments and statutes and judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. The, the point is, of course, God chose Israel, not Israel God. And God gave them his mercy because he chose to give them his mercy. They did not earn it. 
you and I cannot earn God's blessing in any way, shape, and form. We're granted it out of His grace. And so it would be for Israel. If Israel was to be destroyed, of course, this would be defamation of God's name. And, of course, we know the story back in, in Exodus, and we won't turn to there, where Moses pointed that out. If you destroy them, then everybody's going to laugh that you couldn't keep them and, and take them through the wilderness. But there is a passage in Numbers 14 I'd like to turn to, which is similar to the one in Exodus. In Numbers 14, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by thy strength thou didst bring up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that thou, O Lord, art in the midst of this people. For thou, O Lord, art seen eye, seen eye to eye when thy cloud stands over them. Thou dost go before them in a pillar of cloud by day in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou dost slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of thy fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as thou hast declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy loving kindness, just as thou hast also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And what does the Lord say? I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. But my servant Caleb because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. There's a powerful example of Moses standing in as intercessor for his people, and of God hearing and answering his prayer. Intercession is a powerful thing. Verse 23 of this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 12 re-emphasizes that truth. Here we find one of the greatest admonitions of all Scripture. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. It doesn't say, far be it from me that I should sin against you by ceasing to pray for you. That I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Intercession is a keystone of faith. As the children of God, we are obliged to pray for one another. It is both our duty and our privilege. It's an honor to stand in the gap for one another. As part of the body of Christ, 
we must be mutually supported because we are all interconnected, as Paul clearly teaches us as he describes the body of Christ in the New Testament. We are all parts of the body. One part hurts, the whole body hurts. We don't have an option for unbridled self-indulgence. And I think that's one of the insidious sins and destroying factors of the American church today. Unbridled self-indulgence. Me, myself, and I. It's all what matters to me. Am I happy? Am I pleased? What did I get out of this? Rather than how can I serve God on behalf of the body of Christ? If we fail to pray for another, for one another, we not only sin against our brothers in Christ, but the scripture says we sin against God himself. And the very reason for that is because we are one in the body of Christ. Paul gives us a wonderful example of how we should do this in Colossians. You've read it many times, I'm sure, even prayed it. But let me just read it again. Colossians, the first chapter, the ninth verse. Paul is doing exactly what Samuel is talking about. Colossians 1.9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, in strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Ever want to know how to intercede for someone about whom we don't have very many specific details? Wonderful example right there. How can we go wrong in praying that? Praying scripture for people is, is a right way to pray. It's a good way to pray. Samuel went on to say that not only would he pray for them, but he would give them instruction in the good and right way. That is, in righteous obedience to God. The word instruct in that passage comes from the Hebrew root from which we also get the word Torah, which is the Pentateuch. So the word Torah means instruction. It means law. And, and it comes from the idea of instructing. The source from which Samuel would instruct Israel, what would be that source? The Torah, the instruction. He would teach them from the books of Moses. He further encouraged the men of Israel to reverence the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly in accordance to the truth. Truth with a capital T. What is truth with a capital T? It is the word of God. That is truth. You read a verse from Psalm 119 where we read these words. This is one, verse 160. The sum of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. And I think we're all familiar, of course, with Jesus' wonderful prayer in John 17. But let me just read a couple of verses from there. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. And then he defines truth. Thy word 
is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in the truth. Jesus was the living word. We have also the written word. That is truth. All else is falsehood. This is what Samuel taught. This is what Israel needed to know. This is what we need to know. Not in the watered-down version that we get it so many times with some of these namby-pamby uh, um, electronic uh, preachers. Some of them are very good, like Erwin Lutzer. But there are some who water it all down so you wouldn't know that God was in it at all. We read this. You, you all get the Alliance Life. I, well, I don't know if you all do, but I hope you do. But the Alliance Life, some of you probably have read this. But let me read what it, this uh, compilation of the words of A.W. Tozer. God has given us the Bible, brother. The book comes first. If it can't be shown in the book, then I don't want anyone coming to me all a quiver trying to tell me anything. The book, you must give me the word. Every problem that touches us is answered in the book. Stay by the word. I want to preach the word, love the word, make the word the most important element in my Christian life. Read it much, read it often, brood over it, think over it, meditate over it, meditate on the word of God day and night. Between those covers is a living book. God wrote it, and it is still vital and effective and alive. God is in this book. The Holy Spirit is in this book. And if you want to find him, go into the book. The threefold purpose of the Bible is to inform, to inspire, and to secure obedience. Whenever it is used for any other purpose, it is used wrongly and may actually do injury. The Holy Scriptures will do us good only as we present an open mind to be taught, a tender heart to believe, and a surrendered will to obey. Succinctly, accurately said in direct correlation to what we're reading about here in Samuel. Samuel's final address as Shofat ended on an ominous note. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. And as you know, as we shall see, Lord willing, and we are able to continue on, Saul and his family will be ignominiously swept away due to Saul's wickedness, and he will have his body nailed to a wall. God is the epitome of patience and mercy. But as he said concerning the reprobate world in the days of Noah, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Well, next Sunday we'll start with the 13th chapter of 1 Samuel. We start off with a very difficult verse in, in that chapter, but we'll look at it.